is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. Hollywood loses a legend. I'm your son. I love you. I always have. And I always will. But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. Actor Sidney Portier has died at the age of 94. He's the first black actor to win an Academy Award for Best Lead Performance and the first to be a top box office draw. His best-known roles... To Serve with Love, The Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But his legacy is a bit complicated. We'll go in-depth into the life of Sidney Poitier. The Supreme Court could put a quick end to President Biden's vaccine mandates for big companies and healthcare workers. And the CDC says the number of kids under five in the hospital with COVID is rapidly increasing. Is it possible to get a vaccine for them Anytime soon. The CDC being criticized by people who say the messaging is all wrong when it comes to the pandemic. We'll let you know what they want you to know as soon as we figure out what they're trying to say. Remember, records are making a major comeback, but supply chain problems making it hard to meet the surge in demand. And a new study finds exercise is still good for you, even if you're not losing weight. And then at the end of the show, do you roll your eyes when somebody constantly talks about the latest celebrity gossip? Do you think they sound kind of dumb? New study suggests (laughs) they might be dumb. <laughs> oh, we are going to get emails. We start a though, study done by a bunch of nerds. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> says that people don't like Hollywood stuff. Wow. Okay, can't wait for that one. We start though with the death of Sidney Poitier. With us is Beandra July, a film critic and member of the LA Film Critics Association. Thanks for being with us. What is his legacy? Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Um, well, you know, without Sidney Poitier, there is no Denzel Washington. There is no Mahersha Ali. And the list goes on and on. Um, he really was the first. Um, he was not only the first black actor to win um, for the lead role, um, an Oscar for the lead role, but he also was the first to be nominated. So um, I think his legacy is that he um, fought the battles. Uh, he fought, the battles he fought made it possible for you know this sort of golden age that we're having of, of black representation in film and television. Tell me about the roles, how racism, how injustice was part of the story, how he or the characters responded to that. Yeah, well, I think Sidney learned, um, or I should say Mr. Poitier learned um, very early on that the main power he had was his no. So he was offered different roles. And a lot of them were you know, stereotypical, um, had negative portrayals of black folks and black communities. And he got clear very early on in his career, especially as his star rose, that he only wanted to do roles that um, that portrayed black people in a positive light. Now, he was, you know, criticized for this across the board from, from black people, from white critics, from, you know, the whole gamut. But that was the choice that he made with the power that he had. And then later on in his life, after he had acquired more power in Hollywood, he 
actually decided to become a director so that he could have more creative control because really prior to that time, all he had was his no. He could only take a role that was offered to him. You know, Beandre, you mentioned uh, in passing uh, criticism, and he did have a complicated creative life uh, because his films, the ones that I think we all remember the best, To Serve With Love, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all came in the 60s at, at really the, the the most inflammatory time in the beginnings of the civil rights uh, uh roiling basically the the country. And he was criticized a lot by African-American critics who thought that he was caving in to the white power structure of Hollywood. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, it's not really surprising. There's always a double-edged sword when you're a first. I mean, they black people also criticized Hattie McDaniel, who was also a, a, an Oscar winner, um, you know, uh, decades before for playing Maze. But that was all that was offered to her, you know, Sydney alone couldn't um, change Hollywood. You know, he, he, he was one man, but yes, black people definitely criticized him. And um, he actually took that to heart. You know, he was really good friends with Harry Belafonte, who um, was probably, you know, uh, his best friend in the industry throughout his life. And Harry Belafonte had a completely different you know, view, and they had really interesting conversations about civil rights and, and being involved and being more vocal, and Sidney never felt that that was his role, but he always, from the background, did a lot to support, you know, financially, and when he went on to direct his own films and exert creative control, he hired, um, he hired black assistant directors, you know, um, some of them have been tweeting about him today and how he gave them their shot um, on crews when other people wouldn't, and so... I think it was very complicated, but it you would expect nothing less for someone who was the first in a you know a racial climate that was never friendly towards him. So you're the film critic. What are you watching tonight? <laughs> what am I watching tonight? Well, I was just looking back at Buck and the Preacher, which was um, the first film that Sidney directed, which was a black soul Western. And I think um, I might revisit that. I also love that moment in The Heat of the Night where he slaps the white guy who um, they're questioning um, as a potential suspect. And that was something Sidney fought for. It wasn't in the script that he slapped him back. Um, and uh, I think I would just like to see that moment again also. If you can briefly sort of sum up what, as a critic, but also as a, just a moviegoer, right, what is the magnetism, and he certainly had that, that, that you see when you look at Sidney Poitier on the film? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, conversations about him and his, you know, um, role in black politics and and in Hollywood are always dominate. But we have to say that if Sidney Poitier wasn't an absolutely excellent actor, none of he would never have made it as far as he did. Um, he was always like top notch with his craft and he was subtle. You know, he, he wasn't overly demonstrative, but he he always just brought that, you know, gravitas all of his different characters. And I think that is, above all, why he deserves to be remembered and honored. Beyondra July, film critic, member of the L.A. Film Critics Association. Vaccine mandates may be left up to private businesses to mandate on their own. The Supreme Court heard the case today about President Biden's vaccine mandates for large companies and health care workers. It seems the 
court may leave one mandate intact but throw the other one out. With us is L.A.-based health care attorney Harry Nelson, who is author of the book From Obamacare to Trump Care: Why You Should Care. Harry, thanks for being with us. Um, so is that your your take uh, as well, that it seems, and it's always hard, of course, to predict what the Supreme Court is going to end up uh, doing, but it does seem from listening to the arguments this morning that the court is uh, maybe okay with the federal mandate for, for federal workers, but dubious about private employers? Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. The The conservative majority on the court seemed very skeptical about the requirement for every company uh, with 100 or more employees to, uh, to, to, to mandate vaccinations. It seems much more likely that healthcare workers, uh, you know, in, in organizations enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid will still be subject to it. That, that, I, I think that's a safe, a safe bet. And does their problem with the OSHA rules seem to be that it's just it's a federal agency, that it's OSHA, that this should come from Congress, that this should come from states instead if it's going to happen? I think there are a few different arguments that are um, putting the 100 or more employee rule at, at, at risk. I think I think the question, some of the questions, the big questions that seem to be uh, catching uh, recept, getting good reception in the Supreme Court today were the question of whether it's really a worker safety rule when, you know, a person who has to be vaccinated is, is, you know, may not even be coming into a work site. We have a lot of people these days working remotely. You know, we have people working outdoors, people, truckers who are driving around the country who aren't, aren't bothering anybody and, and getting them vaccinated may have nothing at all to do with their work. And I, I think there were also questions about uh, uh, just about whether this is really necessary and doing anything, whether, workplace transmission is really a danger that we need to be worried about. So I, I think I think there's a lot of reasons why the the more conservative justices are inclined to say that this is an overreach by the federal government. Now, there have been Supreme Court cases, uh, have there not before in American history that involves uh, mandates for vaccinations? And, and if that has been the case, uh, if they turn down the Biden administration's push to mandate uh, private employers from from mandating vaccines, would that overturn any previous uh, uh, decisions? Well, it's a great question. Uh, so the, this is really a place where it comes down to state federal authority. The uh, If you go back you know, 100 years ago, or almost almost that, we had smallpox vaccines came before the Supreme Court, and the court ruled that the states had the right to impose vaccines. So all of the, there's a bunch of cases through the years where federal courts have upheld the right of the state to impose vaccines, uh, vaccines in schools, for example. And there's no question that at the state level, state governments have the ability to make those kind of public health decisions. This case was unusual because it was the first federal uh, uh, mandate for vaccines, and it was being done, in, at least in the case of the OSHA rule, in the, con- uh, in the context of work- workplace safety. So that's, that's a, I think that's a really important distinction. And I think what the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are saying is they're much more comfortable to have state legislatures, uh, uh, state government, or even at the, if it's going to be done at the federal level, have Congress actually uh, consider whether, whether, whether this is something we should do. We could get a ruling soon, right? Because these are emergency requests. So this is not like wait until June or July. This could be like a one line order at any time. Yeah, that's I think that's what most people are expecting. You know, the the, the 100 uh, employee or more uh, rule by OSHA goes into effect Monday. Um, and so I think the uh, I, we're expecting that if it's not if not Monday, then at some point next week, we're going to get a ruling. And as you say, this is only 
an emergency rule and a, 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 whether there should be a stay on the emergency rule. This isn't this issue is still going to be going through the courts and heard uh, more fully. So it might be a very short order. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm expecting it, if not Monday, to be coming out by the end of next week. L.A.-based healthcare attorney Harry Nelson. He's got the book from Obamacare to Trump Care, Why You Should Care. Coming up, records, vinyl, have made an incredible comeback over the past several years, so much so COVID-related supply chain problems are impacting their production. And if you think people who spend way too much time following the latest celebrity news and gossip are, well, dare I say it, dumb, a new study suggests you might be right. Right now, though, the CDC says the number of kids younger than five in the hospital with COVID in recent weeks is at the highest level since the pandemic began, four times higher than kids five to 17. Of course, the kids younger than five, they can't be vaccinated. So should this worry parents even more? With us is Dr. Sarah Coombs, pediatric emergency medicine physician, Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So take us through what we think is going on with the uh, the young ones. Obviously, like we mentioned, can't be vaccinated. Omicron's around. Is it is it? worse for them or can they just you know not be vaccinated so here we are it's a great question we're honestly not sure if it's just that it's worse for them or just that they're in the unable to be vaccinated group it's probably the latter to be honest because we know in other age groups that by and large the hospitalized both children and adults tend to be unvaccinated so we do think that the vaccine, even if it doesn't completely prevent you getting the Omicron wave, is going to help with making those symptoms milder and let you stay at home rather than come on into the hospital. We certainly, you mentioned I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm an emergency medicine doc at Children's National Hospital on the front lines. We are seeing just high, high numbers of children across the board with COVID. And about 50% of our hospitalized kids are in that zero to five age range. We in total have more than 50 children in the hospital right now. So that is way up from our peak during the Delta wave where we peaked out at 23 children. So completely the same as what we're seeing across the country and what you're mentioning, high numbers of children with COVID and high numbers of the younger children getting sick, coming into the hospital, needing help with breathing. Okay, so let's say you're a parent and your child, I mean, you know, I don't need to tell you, I mean, little, you know, kids get sick all the time, right? Uh, Your child is uh, displaying some symptoms. How do you know it's time to bundle up your, your child and go running to the ER. And as you also know, ERs are, are packed as it is. Absolutely. I think this is the key question, especially as we're often talking about symptoms related to breathing, which is obviously a key function, as we all know. So I'd say the way to know if it's time to come into the emergency room is you're really looking out to say, is my child having trouble breathing? So a lot of children even with COVID, they may get just a runny nose, maybe a bit of a cough, maybe some sore throat, but they'll be able to breathe normally. They'll be able to eat and drink normally and go about their normal everyday activities. In that case, stay at home, isolate, try and get your hands on an at-home kit. If on the other hand, you look over and notice that your child is breathing heavily, is huffing and puffing, is breathing very quickly, many, many times a minute, Or if you pull up their shirt and you notice that between their ribs, the skin and tissue is sucking in, that's what we call retractions in the medical field, that's a sign that your child is using increased work to breathe. You want to go ahead and bring that child into us in the emergency room.
since they can't get the vaccine yet, I guess, what, try and get everyone who's around them vaccinated if they're not already? 100%. That is the best piece of advice. We think of it like a protective cocoon. You know, we know that the more people around who are vaccinated, hopefully we can reach herd immunity. And certainly within a family, I will share that personally, I have a 22-month-old, so he is not vaccine eligible yet. So both myself, my husband are vaccinated, and anyone that we allow to interact with him, we make sure they are vaccinated and ideally boosted. Dr. Sarah Coombs, Pediatric Emergency Medicine Physician, Children's National Hospital in D.C. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. CDC, criticized for confusing people when it comes to COVID, recently changed the quarantine guidelines for people who test positive for COVID, but many don't quite understand what they're supposed to do. We said at the top of the show something that I heard on another show just the other day. We're going to let you know what the new messaging is as soon as we figure out what the message is. <laughs> right. And we're working on it. And CNN has reported that the CDC director, Rochelle uh, Walensky, has been uh, taking uh, private media consulting lessons to better improve her own communications skills. But has too much damage been done already to the CDC's credibility? With us is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, uh, director of the Center on the uh, uh, Demographic and Economics of Health and Aging at Stanford Medical School. He's also one of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, which has emphasized focused protection on vulnerable groups rather than widespread lockdowns. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Oh, delight to be with you. So, you know, we, we've been uh, saying this, I think, since almost the beginning of the pandemic uh, in, in talking with all of the experts that we've been talking to. The messaging from not just the CDC, from the FDA, from everyone uh, has just been awful. Uh, and why is that? Why has it been so bad, if you agree? I mean, I think the fundamental problem and, uh, you know, the reason why we're seeing this confusing messaging is not actually the messaging itself, but because it's the CDC, the FDA, the government has not clearly articulated the goals of the recommendations. Uh, they, they've sort of had this, like, uh, you know, they haven't exactly that, but they've sort of had this disease eradication goal. Let's get the disease to go away. And, but that failed because it was always impossible. It's a respiratory virus, and it's going to be with us forever. There is no technology we possess to make the virus go away. There are animals that get it. 80% of white-tailed deer in the U.S. have antibodies to this. And so they haven't yet embraced that, the achievable goal, which is protecting the vulnerable while minimizing social disruption. And so the confused messaging reflects their confused thinking about the ultimate policy goal, which has to be protection of the vulnerable, not disease eradication, which is an impossible goal. Yeah, we were talking yesterday about the, the op-eds that went out saying they've got to, they've got to shift this. Um, do you want to give the example of the latest round that has gotten people confused? Because I think also it just doesn't make a lot of sense to people. So they say, okay, if you test positive, and correct me at any point if I get lost here, if you test positive, you go home, you isolate for five days. And then if you want, you can take a test to see if you're positive still, but you don't have to, just like don't go to the restaurant. But if you do test positive, then you should stay home for five more days. I'm already lost. And everybody's saying, why give me the option to test? Make me take a test before I can leave. And if I'm just like a layperson, I think that doesn't make sense. Why are the science people saying that that's fine? 
I honestly I couldn't be able to tell you the details of this because I, I too am confused <laughs> by the messaging. Um, I'll tell you, I think the reason why is, is simple. It's like they are finally starting to understand that they can't eradicate the disease, and yet they also are starting to finally understand that these rules they put in place disrupt the lives of so many people without actually having a, a, a tangible public health benefit. And it's because they're caught in the middle between these two goals that the, the, the policies they pick and the way they communicate about them is always going to be confusing. There's no way around it until they squarely embrace the idea of protection of the vulnerable without, while disrupting society as little as possible. I think that has got to be what they the first thing. It's all, you know, it's all in, in, um, in any organization, you first start with a vision, a mission statement, and then all of the communication flows from that. Their vision is wrong, and that's why their communication is bad. Yeah, but 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 is but is part and maybe the entire problem, Doctor, that that as much as people want to try to keep politics out of this, it's unfortunate, but politics does get into it, and and is is part of the sort of original sin, if you will, is that a new administration comes in says, you know, we are going to get a hand on the pandemic. We're gonna we're gonna stop this. And to your point, that was always unreasonable to 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 say. And now nobody wants to back down and admit they were wrong about that because, from a political point of view, it isn't too good. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally, when I see a politician change course, admit that there was there was that they were on the wrong course, and then say, "Look, we 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 rethought this. Uh, we reached out to the other side, and we've come up with a, a, a plan that that's actually achievable." I, I I tend to forgive the politician that does that. I mean, lots and lots of politicians on both sides have made enormous mistakes during the pandemic and, of course, always before. And to me, honesty about that and then adopting a new goal, a reasonable goal that actually improves the outcomes and well-being of the population, any political group that does that will be rewarded. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Stanford Medical School doctor. Thanks. Younger person in your life went out and bought a turntable and some vinyl. Turns out they are not alone. No, last year, vinyl album sales exceeded CDs for the first time since 1991. This is according to MRC Data Report. And if you think all of those albums were oldies, well, think again. Some of the top vinyl sales of the year were Adele's 30 and Taylor Swift's Red. That's uh, Taylor's version. So why the sudden interest now? Here to unpack it all, Jim Henderson, co-owner of Hollywood's Amoeba Music, and Don McGinnis, president of Record Technology, Inc., Southern California-based vinyl manufacturer. Thanks to you both for being with us. Uh, Jim, let's start with you. How are uh, sales? Well, vinyl sales have been great. Uh, we've Everything that you kind of said has uh, been our reality. Uh, we've seen a very younger demographic coming in and, and building collections around new releases, but also filling it in with uh, the classics. And uh, we've we had a very busy holiday period and uh, excited about the prospects for things going forward. You know, Don, I remember uh, a time when uh, we started getting, you know, digital and, and uh, you know, sort of old timers would say, oh, but the record sounded so much better. Is that what younger people are now discovering, that records actually sound pretty good? Well, yeah, they do like the sound, uh, but I think particularly with the young people, it's a new experience to <clears throat> do something uh, socially, to listen to something socially and hold something that's tangible, the 12 by 12 jacket, uh, and, and read that, uh, get all the information, pass it around. 
like like us oldies used to do back in the 70s and 60s with with our friends. So how has it been for you? And how many of you guys like are there anymore that that print these things? Are you just nonstop? Oh yeah, it's very busy. Oh, we we're, we're one of the survivors of the of the digital uh, takeover of of physical music. Uh, at, at one time, just in the Los Angeles area, there were at least 27 record pressing plants. Uh, now there are only two. Uh, so, yeah, we managed to survive that. And, and nationwide, there was it was down to about 12. But that's increased. That's probably doubled now in the last five years. So can you keep up with demand? Absolutely not. Uh, the capacity uh, is nowhere near what is required for the demand. And that's not only locally, but, but worldwide. And it's going to take some time for that to, uh, to change. Uh, record pressing machines, new record pressing machines are being manufactured, but it's, a, you know, these are small companies that are doing that. And, and it takes time to just get one out the door, let alone, what needs to be done to uh, to resolve this this situation, Jim? How do you think yeah, most people are? How do you think most people are getting into this? We mentioned like you know Adele and Taylor will say that I've got you know this on vinyl. You can buy it there. So maybe is that kind of the foot in the door, or do they see that their parents had a collection? They pick some up from there. They want to expand it, or is it like limited edition runs or colored stuff? I mean, yeah, what what are they looking all for? Of the, all of it. I think the. Uh... Initially, I think one of the lures was that a lot of records were coming with download codes, so you can, you know, still have your digital experience and the physical one. And then I think ultimately, for a lot of uh, of the younger generation, that physical experience kind of won out, and this uh, kind of relationship that you can have with a physical product is something that many of these uh, the, that generation that's now kind of economically active uh, grew up without any thing more than a digital experience with music movies and uh, even books and art so uh yeah i think a lot of it is just this shift in in mentality and, and people kind of longing for something that uh, that they hadn't experienced and seeing what a great product it really is don i'm curious if uh, you know with with progress uh, one would expect that Everything is sort of better now, one would hope, than it was in the past. Are, are records, vinyl, made in a different way now than, say, 30, 40 years ago? Are they, you know, less uh, prone to get scratches and things like that? Uh, no, the, the, the final process of actually molding the, the vinyl into the, into the record uh, is, is a compression molding process that, that hasn't really changed uh for you know, 50 60 70 years i'm not exactly sure how long but um uh, there are uh improvements along the entire chain of manufacturing for, or, or putting out a record from the recording to the mastering which is cutting the initial groove into a lacquer master processing that lacquer master into a mold and then using that mold to uh, press vinyl. Uh, there are improvements in all of those steps, and the result is 
I think records sound better today than they ever have. You mentioned some of the stuff to, to play them on. I mean, some of that's changed, right? Not everybody's wired up to sound systems. You can get you can get like Bluetooth turntables now. Yeah, you can. You can you can uh, uh, transfer uh, audio from vinyl via Bluetooth. Uh, that's that's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation, those are usually pretty low-end turntables. The ideal situation is to have a, at least a, something mid-fi, something that can, can really do a job at extracting that sound from the groove. And, and then along that chain, amplification and, uh, and, and loudspeaker to, to listen to it. Those have, those have all greatly improved too. Uh, and you know, for, I don't know, maybe an investment of 500 bucks, uh, somebody just wanting to take a good look into what's going on in vinyl can have themselves a really nice system. Uh, Jim, I'm curious, are we seeing also a renaissance in artwork for album jackets? Well, yeah, you're seeing uh, definitely a creative uh, kind of burgeoning that way. You're also seeing a lot of referential uh, artwork going back to, you know, some of the classic records where, um, you, know, you know, paying homage to to those that came before them. But yeah, everything from, you know, lenticular jackets to uh, pressings with multiple limited edition, you know, kind of cover runs. Uh, it's the the packaging plays a, a big part into the overall experience of, of listening to vinyl records for sure. Jim Henderson there, co-owner of Hollywood's Amoeba Music. Don McGinnis, president of Record Technology, Southern California-based vinyl manufacturer, one of the two that are uh, still around and busy as ever. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. As we kick off 2022, many of us putting our New Year's resolutions to the test, one of the common ones, lose weight, exercise more. If you've just begun your regimen, you're getting frustrated because you're not seeing the results. Science says do not worry. Yeah, research shows that exercise can improve your health and overall longevity, even if the scale isn't really moving. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford practices obesity medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So yeah, you know, when when people make these New Year's resolutions, they often, you know, get disappointed because they exercise uh, they still, of course, stuff their face with like muffins. And then <laughs> a month or two later, they look down at the scale and they didn't make much progress. They think, but they did, didn't they? Let's look at what we find and what we know about exercise and its impact on weight regulation. So on average, when we look at exercise and the impact it plays for most people, and notice I said most, nothing's 100%. But for most people, what we see is that it causes weight stability. So on average, most Americans gain weight year after year after year in adulthood until they reach about the age of 60. So what we could do is instead of you having that consistent weight gain up until the age of 60, exercise helps quell that and helps makes it makes you maintain a weight even if it may not be the weight that you like. So think about it that way. We're preventing weight gain as opposed to often causing dramatic weight loss. What else does it do to our body when we're at a certain level of activity through the week, even if you're not like totally changing everything when you look 
in the mirror because we're meant to move around, right? That's part of the, th- right. the whole thing. We're not supposed to be sitting at desks all day. We're like, you know, hunter gatherers. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So physical activity has a lot of positive benefits. For weight, it causes stability. But let's think of all the other positive benefits we get. Number one, it improves your mental health. I always tell my patients, exercise is the antidepressant that people don't want to take. Does it make sense? Because you actually don't have to take a pill. All you have to do is get moving and get grooving, right? So that's one thing that's extremely important. It improves your overall heart health. So when we look at people in terms of longevity, um, the quality of life that they live throughout their life, those that are most physically active, and by that I mean at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week, which means that you could do maybe talking during the activity, but you couldn't sing during the activity. So heart health is extremely important. And then I would say the other key thing I want to talk about is metabolic health. So by being active, it reduces your likelihood of having obesity, diabetes, and other metabolic diseases. Well, not singing is good for me because I don't like to sing even when I'm standing <laughs> still, let alone, let alone exercising. But but uh, is there one particular kind of exercise that's better than another? You know, it's interesting. I always tell my patients the best exercise is the exercise that they'll do and they'll do consistently for the rest of their lives. So that's number one. That would be my number one point, um, point of advice. But if you look at the studies, um, when we look at interval style training, so training that incorporates both cardio and strength, and alternating sets, that tends to be overall most effective um, for disease. Um, and so I always encourage people to alternate between cardio and strength. Um, and even if they want to do that on separate days, that's fine. But if they can do that all within one setting of one workout, that's even more ideal. Is the 10,000 steps a day thing real or did somebody just make that up at some point? No, that's actually real. So 10,000 steps for most of us would be the equivalent of walking five miles a day. You can imagine that about uh, 80% of Americans don't reach that every day. So um, we are well below that number. I think that target was given, you know, and that was actually back in the the early 90s that we really started to see that number come into um, the limelight um, when we recognized that people were leading mostly sedentary lives. And you can imagine that during this current pandemic that we've become even more sedentary as Zoom has become something that's part of our lexicon, right? Um, as we sit in front of our computer screens all day working um, for those of us that have, you know, stay at home work orders. Um, And so it's just intensified over time. So what exercise do I need to do and yet eat as much as I want? Donuts on Friday. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I would say that that's, that's a problem that we think, you know, exercise doesn't compensate for, you know, all the other choices that we might be making that may not be as advantageous (laughs) Um, I would say, like I said, find your soulmate workout. So for example, I live in the Northeast. Um, I do not like skiing. So that would not be the exercise that my doctor should tell me to do, because if they told me that that was the activity I had to do, I would be completely inactive. I am someone who loves, loves, loves physical activity. And so on average, I'm doing about 350 to 400 minutes of moderate to high intensity interval training per week. That's because I found the exercises that I like, which include everything from kickboxing, to high intensity interval training, to using a Peloton bike, doing beach body on demand, less mills on demand, et cetera. Um, and it's about finding what I like and what I enjoy. And do, I make do it a priority. Sne- do you sneak a donut in? 
I, I have a gluten sensitivity, so no, not. Oh, really. okay. <laughs> yeah. so, okay. Well, there are there are some gluten free donuts out there, but most of them aren't. There you aren't, go. Aren't, aren't, aren't as good as, as a lot of the ones that probably are gluten containing. <laughs> All right, Doctor uh, Fatima Cody Stanford practices obesity medicine in Massachusetts General. Well, you probably know a person or two or maybe three who just can't shut up about celebrities and the latest tabloid gossip, and maybe you think. They sound stupid talking about it and obsessing so much. Well, if you do, you might be right. There is this study out of Hungary found those who scored higher on a celebrity attitude scale generally scored lower on two cognitive ability tests. David Schmidt is with us to talk about this pop culture expert, true crime author, English professor at University of Buffalo. David, thanks for being here. So uh, baseline, most of these studies can never actually like point to real cause and effect. Um, but what is your take on this one? Well, first of all, I always say that there are two kinds of people in the world. The first kind are people who admit to being interested in celebrities, and the other kind are liars. Uh, those are the people ones. who are still interested but just won't admit it. So my first problem with this study is that we're talking about a phenomenon here that is massive. I don't know anyone who isn't interested in celebrities to some extent. So I don't know if that makes us all idiots, but my other problem with this study is that People are interested in celebrities for a lot of different reasons, and I just don't see any correlation between that and intelligence. Well, but could it be, I mean, you sort of just mentioned it, could it be that the planet is filled with stupid people? (laughs) Well, you could be forgiven for thinking that, yeah, but let's look at it a little more closely. I mean, first of all, um, I would argue that interest in celebrities to a certain extent is healthy and harmless. Now, Obviously, we all know that some aspects of it can be toxic, can be harmful. I'm not going to deny that. But if you're in a situation, as we all are, where we're living busy, high-paced, stressful lives, and you take 10 minutes when you're in the line at the supermarket to look at a tabloid magazine and think about Pete Davidson and Kim Kardashian, I don't see the harm in that. I think, you know, we take these... uh, opportunities to sort of look at the lives of celebrities and they're kind of escape valve for us. I don't think it's I've ever thought people, about those relax. two. I don't think I've ever thought about them. Have you? Oh, well, yeah. Not, yeah. Until I was, yeah. Not until I was forced to do so. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you see it on Twitter and you go, yeah, well, what's go, going oh, yeah, on yeah. with this? Yeah. Um, when they looked at this, these hungry people, um, was it like normal celebrity thoughts or are they looking at people who are like weirdly obsessed with their stars and waking up like i wonder what so and so is doing today because then maybe then we're at a whole different kind of ball game i think it is um more towards the side of obsession but often i don't think it's really possible to distinguish between those two things that um that easily and like i said i mean i think it can have not just it's harmless but it can be positive i mean we lost betty white like a week or so ago right And you look at the outpouring of emotion um, that came with that news. We all know that we live in a society that's more polarized than ever. We disagree about everything. We can't talk to each other. But someone like Betty White passes, and for a moment, everyone's on the same page. And everyone feels the same thing. And I think that can be very useful, especially in these times. Well, I I guess maybe it helps 
to uh, sort of separate different groups, right? I mean, th- there's the person, and you mentioned that before, uh, who is in the supermarket line, perhaps, and they're waiting to get to the cashier, so they pick up a, a, a copy of whatever the tabloid is, and they read about uh, whatever celebrity happens to be on the cover. But then there is the person who... That's their entire diet. Uh, You know, they're reading that. They go home. They watch all these celebrity interview shows to the exclusion of almost anything else. I mean, that's not healthy. And if somebody says something bad about that star, then they're going to go after them because that's my person. Yeah, exactly. I think that kind that level of investment is definitely problematic. And I think any time you're limiting your media diet to one kind of programming, whether it's celebrity programs or reality tv or sports or whatever it happens to be um you get this sort of tunnel vision i don't think is helpful so i'm all for advocating for people to consume as many different forms of media as possible but i think that the other thing we need to take consideration here is to ask the question of why like why are people so fixated on celebrities in the first place and that's really complicated because celebrities are in a kind of double bind you know we love them and we hate them at the same time we can't really figure out how we feel about them we can't live without them right love them hate them and they're here well we envy them don't we I think on part of it, yeah, I mean, they're ideals, you know, they're they're richer than us, they're more beautiful than us, they're more successful than us. But at the same time, everyone knows that feeling that when a celebrity screws up, we feel happy. Right, because they're stupider than us, too. Yeah, Yeah. Right. I mean, we're never happier than when we're reading about someone, you know, in rehab or that marriage just collapses. And maybe that's just because we're bad people. But I also think it's because that mixture of love and hate is at the center of our relationship with celebrities. You know, we're jealous of them, and yet we want to be like them at the same time. How does it happen that some people don't really care about current stars, but then they like there's some people who are just like really big on the 80s or maybe that's when they came up and then it never went past that. Or there's still like old Hollywood types that that's the generation that they're obsessed with. They didn't even live through it, but they look back and then that's their whole like celebrity world, even though those people aren't even around anymore. Well, I think that's the beauty of celebrity. I mean, it's kind of like this endless buffet. And whatever your taste is, whatever you're looking for, you can find something to satisfy your appetite. I mean, you look at a magazine like those tabloid magazines we were talking about earlier. One of the things you notice if you leaf through a few of those is that they're all young. I mean, we don't Hmm. really see celebrities from previous generations, except for someone like Betty White, who in the end was kind of a celebrity just by virtue of the fact that she'd lived so long. And if she'd made it to 100, it would have been an even bigger deal. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of um, the kind of tabloid celebrity culture that's just focused on people who are young, who are now, and they want us to forget about the past. David Schmidt is a pop culture expert, true crime author, English professor, University of uh, Buffalo. You know my favorite part of the segment? Yes. When when you were talking about the study being done in Hungary, you mm-hmm. referred to them as those hungry people. Those hungry people. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's who they are, <laughs> those hungry people. All right, that's In Depth for the week. We'll see you on Monday.